This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Colorado artists produced a lot of great music this year. John Oates, The Lonesome Days, and a classical father-son duo are just some of the acts we're revisiting today to hear the stories and sounds from Colorado music in 2017. And that has to include the Flowbots. This year, they wanted to give protest demonstrators new songs to sing. The hip-hop group has always been inspired by social movements for justice and equality with chants like this. I am a sleeping giant. Let's try that. I am a sleeping giant. Good. There lives a riot in my bones. There is a riot in my bones. Later, that chant grew into a track on their new album. The album No Enemies came out in May, and we got a taste from Flobot's MCs Jamie Laurie and Stefan Brackett, better known as Johnny Five and Br'er Rabbit. They spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner. Welcome, gentlemen. That's Thank you so you. much. Where did the idea come from to create songs that people would sing in the streets, Jamie? Well, I mean, it's an old idea, right? It's one that um, if you look back at any social movement, there were people who were singing together and it was a source of collective power. Um, and it really only feels like a new idea because people haven't been doing it as much in recent years. But Yeah, do me- you think it fell out of fashion? It certainly seems like it. I mean, uh, there was a mentor of ours, um, Vincent Harding, who would always push us on this question and say, this, it's great that you guys are in a band and it's great that you're connecting your band to social movements, but where are the songs for the movements? And, you know, it's songs like the one just now that actually was a song written by a woman named Susie Q, um, a friend of ours, uh, Sleeping Giant, that we said, you know what, these songs are already here. Why don't we start singing them? So um, that's what this this project has been about. And Stefan, it's important to say that you started this way before President Trump's campaign and election. Absolutely. Yeah, this is yes. an older project. Yeah, um, we've been pretty much working on it for about three years. And it's been this beautiful thing where you're working on something and trying to write about what you're hearing, what we're gathering from the streets, what we're hearing from communities, different activist communities as well. And now we have an album that seems like it was tailor-made for this time. Huh. All, but that's all, coincidence. It's, it's coincidence. It's totally coincidence. <laughs> like, like Trump, Trump wasn't even a serious candidate when we were when we were writing these albums, but it is, we feel like it's really appropriate for now. We're really excited for it to be in people's hands. Are you taking a political stance in releasing this album, or is it for all protesters of all stripes, would you say? Well, I think political um, means a lot of things to a lot of people. To us, what it means is engaging with your community in a serious way that, where you're trying to transform things that need to be transformed. So, you know, climate change is political, right? Caring about your environment is political, but also making sure that neighborhoods and communities are safe for people. That's that's political. I think one of the main politics about this album is just getting people to stand against the culture of silence. And we feel like music is one of the most beautiful ways for people to come together and experience their emotional journey. And that is one of the things, if you look at songs as technology, that it allows people to come together and feel something together, and then in that same breath, not feel alone. I wonder, though, if people are hesitant to sing in public, because I think this country places great emphasis on singing well, if you sing. Absolutely. And I wonder if, to some extent, that's why it's fallen out of favor, is people think, well, I'm not good enough to be on The Voice 
I wouldn't sing at this rally. It is exactly that. We've professionalized almost all of the different art forms. So people feel as though um, they don't have the permission to do so. But we also think that in doing that, we're also teaching each other not to use our voices, both singing and speaking out. Hmm. And um, we feel like this is a great way for people to practice like shouting beautifully. When you sing, it's more of an emotional argument. So it's not as easy to block out. You mentioned Vincent Harding as an inspiration here. So um, I want to say that this is a double album and you have a record of of some more raw recordings. And uh, Vincent Harding was very heavily involved in the civil rights era. He's the late author and activist in Denver who worked with Martin Luther King Jr. He died in, in 2014. And I understand that he introduced you to some of these spirituals to some of these songs of the civil rights era. Tell me more about how he influenced this. I mean, he was a mentor for both of us for and a family friend and someone we've known you know, um, most of our lives. And what he really introduced us to was, was the fact that the Southern Freedom Movement was a singing movement and that that was not icing on the cake. Mm-hmm. That was a core technology that people were using to be able to be sustained and strong and courageous in key moments. And that it was a culture that came out of a, a much deeper tradition, um, and all of that was it was a wellspring of strength for that movement. So he would always point to the need to foster that, not in a, in a superficial short-term way, but in a mm. deeper long-term way. And that, that really inspired us to say, right after he passed away, actually, to realize we needed to start answering this question he had been asking about, where are the songs for today's movements? We needed to help write them. We needed to help reclaim them. We needed to help remix them and uh, spread and disseminate them. A couple of years ago, a group stood outside the Denver Police Department and sang one of Harding's favorite civil rights songs called We Are Building Up a New World. What makes a good protest song? Um, In the process of trying to recover these traditions, we realize that there's a difference between songs of performance and what we're calling songs of power. And songs of power are those those protest songs, and they're usually very evocative. Hmm. They emotionally or accurately reflect the emotion of the time. And usually the second time that you hear it, you can sing it yourself. So a lot of the times... In the Southern Freedom Movement, you use songs that came from the, the black church because people knew the melody. So what we do now with No Enemies is like we a lot of times will borrow melodies from a Justin Bieber song or something like that. So if we're in a large group, uh-huh. if people hear the melody, they connect. Then, then they, can, they can connect and then just adjust the words and then can join in. And that joining in is the essential thing. Does Justin Bieber know you're doing this? Um, we, we haven't let him know quite okay. yet. Yeah, I think he's, <laughs> he's, on, he's on board conceptually. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the other things that happens too is that I think that the culture will be ready for a certain level of song. So if, if, if everyone is scared to sing, if it's completely countercultural to raise your voice at all, then maybe the most you can do at a rally is chant. But if you actually have practiced singing together and you, you know, know some of the same melodies and it's something that you do on the regular, then it becomes much more possible to do something more adventurous during a march, during a rally. So a chant might be a way to just break open just a, a slight fracture right. and, and perhaps get someone involved more thoroughly in singing. I understand that you both particularly love the song Failure Games. My brother, we lost you to the waters that have always lied to us. I lost you, thought my hands were quick, but they were never quick enough. I never did 
I lost you to the demons that have grown up in the crib with us. And I wasn't in your corner when those lies came to fist cuffs. My other, we're all born with a dragon branded on our shoulder blades. Scars are invisible, but my spine knows the way. All of us in the struggle. Tell me about this song. Well, with the album No Enemies, period, we also wanted to kind of deal with the emotional spectrum of trying to be a change maker and what the the roller coaster ride that is. And um, failure comes up a lot. That is to say the maybe disappointment in some movements in the direction of the country? The disappointment, but also like usually when you're starting with a movement, there's like this belief and there's this huge momentum, like there's this all this progress you're like oh we're gonna topple patriarchy tomorrow and then it doesn't fall and so um there's that disappointment that disenchantment that disillusionment and that's just part of the cycle of like thinking that you can get a bunch of people to change something and then like realizing how long a marathon that is and um in failure games in particular um the verse that you just played um, is specifically written about a friend of mine who was a brilliant member of the struggle who um ended up taking his life Mm -hmm. um and specifically locating that feeling of failure of, um, could I have done more? I mean, it's interesting because depression has apparently been a problem in the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. in particular. The Washington Post reported last year about dozens of leaders in the movement sharing stories of anxiety and insecurity on social media. You talked about your personal experience there. Yes. Do you worry that the current momentum that you sense uh, for activism will peter out? No, because I think it's it's not a matter of sustaining the exact same type of momentum throughout. It's more about deepening and building relationships that are long-term and transformative. And it's one of the reasons that we've not just promoted singing and songs as a tool for movements, but um, creating spaces to sing together, because that's also places where people build relationships where there might not be them. We may not have churches that people attend regularly and build relationships there, so we need to create those spaces. And you've been doing that. You've had singing events in the community. Absolutely. Yeah, the last, you know, since 2014, we've done over 50 events just in Denver and then also around the state and around the country, just gathering people and saying, what are some songs we can all sing together? And why are we all so scared of singing? Do you find people who uh, lose the fear? Every time. Yeah. Huh? Every time. Every time. Simply by asking the question, people say, that's a silly fear, and they lose the fear. And, and it proved to be a very fertile soil from which this album grew, because that, mm. you know, that was just sort of creating this common culture. Well, why don't we go out with one more song from the album called Carousel. It's about the, the information bubble that social media and cable TV can help create. In the dead of night, deep inside myself, so the Jamie Laurie and Stefan Brackett, better known as Johnny Five and Br'er Rabbit from the Denver hip-hop group Flowbots. Their album No Enemies came out earlier this year. Like, I'm on a boat, 
is so human and lifelike Forget the small talk, give me the festival slot The best that y'all got, leave me up here on my pedestal While the rest of y'all watch the spectacle Please don't let me fall off Blues legend Albert King performed at the Fox Theater in Boulder just months before he died. That was back in 1992. This year, the Fox celebrated its 25th anniversary. Other big names have played on this stage. Willie Nelson, Coldplay. CPR's arts reporter Corey Jones gathered some memories from the Fox earlier this year. Hi, my name is Don Strasberg. I'm one of the owners of the Fox Theater in Boulder, Colorado. We felt like the other places were being run by people who didn't actually care about the experience and didn't understand it. And we wanted to go to a place where we felt welcomed. And so we built it. One of the, you know, millions of memories was David Byrne from the Talking Heads originally. David Byrne comes in probably about 10 or 12 years ago. And um, he had new music, but he was also, you know, playing old Talking Heads music. And then to boot, you know, he's just riding his bike around Boulder. I think he had a radio interview that day, rode his bike down to the radio station. It was like, there's David Bergman's bicycle. It's just very nonchalant. I mean, whether it be Muse, Ryan Adams, um, Dead Mouse, or Wilco, Widespread Panicked Fish, the band The Verve came through, and um, it was pre-Bittersweet Symphony. Hey, this is Kyle Hollingsworth. I play keyboards in a band from Colorado called The String Cheese Incident. I went to the Fox. I just moved to Boulder, Colorado. And my girlfriend and I went to see a show at the Fox, and there was a band called The String Cheese Incident playing. And they sounded fantastic, but I had a feeling they needed a keyboard player. So I walked up to Michael Kang. He's a mandolin player from The String Cheese Incident. And he and I struck up a conversation, and we ended up connecting and doing some jamming together. And I joined the band at, right when they moved to Boulder, and one of my first gigs with them was at the Fox Theater. When you first enter the lobby, the first thing you see is all those pictures, and it's just sort of a walk through history. This is like all-star cast. Johnny Winter. I was at that show. Gary Newman, Jack Johnson, Flaming Lips. This was one of my very first photos. It's terrible, but that was from 2000. That's the year I started. Hi, I'm Lisa Siciliano. I started at the Fox Theater in 1992 as a cocktail waitress. Taught myself photography here and moved on to be a full-time photographer, specializing in rock and roll. You got to see these people before they were famous, and some you didn't even know they were going to be famous. I mean, I waitressed Dave Matthews here at one of his first shows, and there was like 150 people here. I never in a million years thought he would become Dave Matthews. I would just keep my camera above the bar. I would go up at Encore, grab my camera, go down and take a few photos. Instead of going to photography school, I learned here. Hey, this is G-Love from G-Love and Special Sauce, and I'm calling in from Boston. Uh, we're getting ready to start our tour and take it to Colorado. The first time we came through the Fox was in 1994, and we came through on a Saturday night, and we just blew the roof off the place. 
it was such a special night for us. The crowd was just electric, and you know, it was our first time playing in Colorado. And we got off stage, and Donnie Strasberg, who was one of the original owners of the Fox, came up and said, I know you have off tomorrow, you want to play Sunday matinee show. So we said, oh, hell yeah. We booked it, and uh, it was another great show. So that kind of solidified this amazing connection we've had with Colorado in general. It all started there, you know. That was G-Love from the Philadelphia band G-Love and Special Sauce. Now on to another Philly artist with a Colorado connection, somebody who is one half of the most successful musical duos of all time. Consider these numbers. 18 studio albums, 11 live ones, 60 million records sold, and six number one singles, including this one from 1982. John Oates met Daryl Hall in 1967 at a Philadelphia ballroom where each had performed separately. They decided to combine forces, brought together by a shared love of Philly soul, doo-wop, and Motown. They've had their ups and downs over the years, but lately they've been riding a new wave of popularity. All this is covered in the new memoir by John Oates called Change of Seasons. John spoke with Ryan Warner, and it's one of our favorite musical interviews of 2017. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You have a really deep connection to Colorado. You call this state your destiny, and uh, it began with a ski trip to Aspen in 1968, you write about seeing a young John Denver perform in a bar in Snowmass. Fast forward to the early 1990s when you decided to move to Aspen full time. In the book, you call it a rebirth. What in your life brought you to Aspen permanently? As the 80s were winding to an end, uh, both Daryl and I had uh, seen the writing on the wall and we realized we couldn't sustain the type of popularity, this mega popularity that we had during that period of time for about seven or eight years. And we both kind of decided to take a little break and see what happens and find a new way forward. During that exact same period of time, um, I was going through a divorce and I went through some financial issues with management. And quite frankly, I wasn't paying enough attention to the business side of things and running around the world being a pop star. And uh, when it all kind of collapsed, I found Colorado uh, as my refuge. And it really uh, saved me. I decided to leave the East Coast where I was born and you know, spent most of my life. Sold everything I had, um, started over again in a little cabin in, in Aspen. And uh, subsequently, uh, after hiking and skiing the mountains and met a gal and got remarried, had a kid, built a house and uh, really started my life over again. Yeah, therein lies, I think, the, the destiny. Uh, but you wrote that essentially you were broke. You had all of the well, all well, of the toys. Well, well yeah. <laughs> let's not get too. It's it's too easy to say that. I'm I'm really sorry, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I didn't have any cash, but I had a lot of stuff. Uh-huh. So I'm talking about airplanes, collection of classic cars, two apartments in New York, a house in Connecticut, and a condo in Aspen. So I wasn't exactly broke, but I literally didn't have any cash, and so what I proceeded to do was sell everything I owned literally cleaned house and started over again. You were sort of in debt to the record company. Like they had advanced you a lot of money. This is part of, yeah, you weren't minding your P's and Q's financially. I think at one point in the book, you write that you never really wrote your own checks or had any sense of the money being spent. 
I never paid a bill. I never used a credit card or never used a checkbook for my entire, you know, young adult life until the early 90s, to be honest with you. When I wanted something, I just called the office and said, hey, I want a car or I want this car or whatever. or I want to buy an apartment. And uh, I used just bought it. Where the money came from, it was a bit of a mystery. And since it was rolling in in such large quantities, I never questioned it. You know, it seems kind of, I guess, to the average person, it seems crazy and extravagant and, and irresponsible. And it was. But in the world of music and rock and roll, it's an age-old story. I'm certainly not the only artist to ever experience this. I did love the detail in your book that the first time you were in Aspen for that skiing trip, you asked where you could score some pot, and they pointed you to a rundown hotel called the Jer- <laughs> called the Jerome, um, which of course today right. is like super fancy. And That's it, right. in '68, you still saw horses tied out front. Oh yeah, there was always a couple guys with, um, you know, usually carrying guns. You know, in a holster and tying their horses up in front of the J bar. And, you know, the wallpaper was peeling off the walls. And, uh, you know, it was just kind of a crash pad, really. My how things change. You ended up buying a, a rundown log cabin in Woody Creek um, with a red 1975 Pontiac Granville convertible parked inside. <laughs> inside. Yes. Well, I happened to ask the real estate agent, who was a friend of mine, uh, who owned the convertible, and he said, well, your neighbor, Hunter Thompson, across the way. (laughs) I said, well, okay, great. I said, why is he keeping his car in a piece of property that he doesn't own? And he just, the real estate agent looked at me, he said, it's Woody Creek, you'll you'll figure this out. So (laughs) I did learn over the years that Woody Creek is a very unique place in the world. It was about this same time, you know, this time of real transition for you, that you shaved off your famous mustache, John Oates. Um, yeah, and you, it, was a, it was a wholesale life change. You devote a chapter in the book to this. What, what prompted you to shave it off? <laughs> Not many people devote an entire chapter of their book to their mustache. It, in a weird way, it kind of represented the guy I was, the guy who made all the financial mistakes and was irresponsible and got a divorce. And I think uh, that whole financial collapse and the divorce and all the things that happened to me were just a, a huge wake-up call. And it was kind of like get your act together here, man. This is like, you got to grow up. And the mustache in some weird way was symbolic of, of that other guy. And I didn't want to be that other guy anymore. And uh, so I shaved it off. I guess it was kind of like a ritualistic cleansing of sorts. <laughs> I was surprised to learn that the success Hall and Oates has had did not happen instantly. I mean, in the early no. 70s, you recorded three albums for Atlantic Records, but they didn't sell very well. And you had no hit no, singles didn't. out of them. No, we had a semi-hit with a song called She's Gone, but it really wasn't a big, big hit. You know, interesting, and I look back at that period of time, and I'm just, I feel so blessed and fortunate to have come up in an era where artists were allowed to develop and make creative mistakes, which was really it's essential for any creative person to try and experiment and do things and fail. Uh, I think you learn much more from failure than you do from success. And fortunately, we had a situation where the record company stuck by us because they believed in our talent. And it wasn't just about the uh, chart numbers or or sales numbers. Well, your first big hit in 76 was the song Sarah Smile. And when I feel I can't go on, you come and hold me. It's you and me forever. Sarah, smile. Oh, won't you smile for me, Sarah? 
I can hear some of that ballroom in there. What do, what do you think of that song when you hear that 40 years later? Well, first of all, I think it's really a, an amazing, amazingly simple, elegant song. Um, but what I uh, what I really hear is how young Daryl's voice sounds. Uh-huh. Uh, it sounds like little kids singing to me. Um, and uh, it's just a wonderful song that, uh, you know, is, is here again, simple in its elegance. And when you feel cold, I warm you. And when you feel you can't go on, I come and hold you. It's you and me forever. John Oates speaking about his life and career, which you can read all about in his new memoir, Change of Seasons. Oates is selling his home in Woody Creek, Colorado, and you can hear why in an extended version of this interview at CPR.org. And while you're there, check out our Spotify playlist of our favorite tracks from 2017. Music from Ron Miles, The Lumineers, and Bela Fleck with the Colorado Symphony. Get the Spotify playlist at CPR.org. Music fills up people's homes during the holidays, but for this next duo, it happened a lot more often. Richard Stoltzman is one of the best-known clarinetists in the world. His son Peter John Stoltzman took up piano. And earlier this year, I talked with both of them about their love for their art and what it was like to grow up in such a musical household. It was one of my favorite music interviews from 2017. Richard, Peter, welcome. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you. You've played many recitals together over the years. Uh, Peter, how is the connection you feel on stage to your dad different from one you'd feel with another musician you've played with for years? Oh, man, you know, it's my father. (laughs) So it's special to have this kind of relationship with my father. A lot of people don't get that. And if they do, they they don't get uh, a public expression of it where you're actually doing something together that's, uh, you know, an offering to an audience. So, yeah, I, I cherish this. Well, I want to hear a little bit, a bit of this work that you've done together. Uh, this is a track by Peter called Lullaby from your album Father and Son. Let's listen. important was this to you, the, the fact that you did this together? What do you remember about working on Lullaby? Well, um, my dad used to sing the Brahms Lullaby for me when I was going to sleep. And so this was kind of a, an homage to that. Lullaby and good night. May the bright stars watch over you. <laughs> and I put that melody in retrograde <laughs> and uh, and harmonized it, and, and it came out beautifully. I mean, the melody, it works beautifully. 
Peter, your dad is known for playing classical and jazz, and few musicians can do both well. Uh, you're less interested in classical. How early on did you gravitate toward jazz? Um, pretty early. I started with Suzuki as a young kid, six years oldish, and um, and is that reading by sight? Does that sight reading or uh, kind of? But I but I basically learned it all by ear. I see. <laughs> and uh, and my teacher before we left Oakland, California, to move to Boston, told my parents, uh, you know, this kid's going to have to improvise. And oh. sure enough, uh, it, less than a year of classical lessons in. Uh, I, I wanted to quit the instrument. And so my parents found me a great jazz teacher. So I started jazz, I guess, you know, I, I couldn't have been more than 10. Hmm. And that that was pretty, that pretty much became my path. Uh, yeah. I went to Berkeley, you know, and, uh, and jazz it was, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. We played Holy Mama together when you were 10 years old on Tokyo television. Really? <laughs> mm-hmm. In Japan? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, around the world places, uh, you had a career, Richard, that led you to many different parts of the world for concert dates. Was it a challenge to maintain a relationship with your kids while you were in an on-demand type of thing as a musician, always wanted to be somewhere? That's a terrible question. <laughs> I, I, I'll, never, I'll never be able to get past the guilt I feel t- having missed pretty much everything that is significant to both my kids growing up. And um, what just is a constant marvel to me touring with Peter John is how great a father he was without really, now Peter just shut up, without the example of a good father. And and um, part of it was I was full of myself and doing my own touring and uh, things and, you know, and oh, I thought, well, it's too late to call. Um, you know, I'm not going to call. It's expensive, long distance, you know. But but he was there for some of the things that you were doing. I, I want to uh, play a little clip from your appearance on Sesame Street from the 1980s. This is uh, Richard Stoltzman improvising on the show's theme on his clarinet. Richard Stoltzman playing. He's visiting us here today. Do you know what that instrument he's playing is called? It's called a clarinet. Shh, let's listen. That, by the way, is Telemonster introducing uh, Richard. Uh, Peter, you got to take along during that (laughs) visit to Sesame Street. What do you remember about that? Um, I remember seeing Big Bird uh, without the, without the top on <laughs> and just having the ultimate dissolution moment of like, oh. no, it's a man inside, inside a costume. So, yeah, but uh, that was fun. Uh, you know, uh, my dad's uh, overstating the, the amount of him being away. Yeah, it's real, um, all that. Uh, but also he was around a lot. And when he was around, he, um, he was in, in very engaged and a wonderful father for me. We have a long history of bonding things, including, you know, going to baseball games together and, and playing and doing, uh, you know, music together and lots of, lots of great things. One of the things I love about playing with Peter John is that he breathes with me without any 
indication, as you usually do in chamber music, of giving signs as if he just breathes with me. And I realized it's because he would, in, instead of me putting him to sleep, he put on my CDs and fall asleep. And so... <laughs> that's, he, that's that connection again. Yeah. I want to go down this. This is music by George Gershwin, recorded during a session in the CPR Performance Studio with two generations of Stoltzmans, Rich on clarinet and Peter on piano. Clarinetist Richard Stoltzman and pianist Peter John Stoltzman speaking with me back in February. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Bluegrass fans in Colorado are taking note of two up-and-comers. Hazel, it's your birthday today. Cody sisters. Megan and Maddie are from Parker, south of Denver. Megan sings lead, and Maddie wrote this track. The surprising part is that Maddie is just 12 years old. Her sister Megan is 14. They live in Parker, have a new album out, and over the summer they took a break from touring the Front Range to speak with Ryan Warner. Here's Maddie explaining the song, Hazel. Hazel, it's your fifth grade graduation. I'm sorry, but it's about a dad who's always on business or away from home, and the daughter is, like, missing the dad, but he's, like, missing out on the important part of her life. Hmm. It's interesting. This is not autobiographical because, in fact, your dad, Steve, is in our green yeah. room. He accompanied <laughs> you here. He plays music with you. He's basically your manager. So th- they're not all literally about your life. Maddie. Yeah, they're mostly focused on the opposite of my life. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Take your experience and make it a bit sadder, maybe? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. How did you both get into music, Megan? Well, our dad played um, guitar around the house a lot as we were growing up, and we wanted to be just like him. So we got guitars for our birthdays, and he just would teach us a few things, and then we got other teachers that we took lessons from for a while. And did it feel like you were forced into this at certain points? Like, I remember never wanting to do piano lessons. Or did you take to it really quickly? Oh, no, not at all. We love it so much. And um, if we ever didn't want to do it, then we wouldn't have to at all. But we choose to do it, and we really love what we do. Maddie, would you say that's true for you? Yeah, I agree with that. Hmm. You play at jam circles, at music festivals, I know, a lot, with people who are significantly older than you. (laughs) Do you get comments like, oh, how cute? And what do you think of comments like that if you do get them? Yeah, we get comments a lot like that, and we don't really like to have those comments because we don't really focus on our age and, like, how cute we are or something. We just focus on how good we are and, like, just practicing stuff like that. I think that when people say that we're cute, they really mean well. But when we hear that, we think, oh, they think we're cute because we're kids that are playing music. But really, 
we work really hard at what we do. So um, we appreciate it when people are like, wow, your music sounds really good instead of, whoa, you're so cute. Yeah. And there's, I don't know, there's something like vaguely sexist about you're so cute too. I don't know if you feel yeah, that. Yeah. One of your influences is Bob Dylan and you cover his song, Don't Think Twice. It's one of my favorites on this new album. It's really nice to hear a lighter, brighter version of that because the other one can leave me so depressed. <laughs> uh, and you have such beautiful harmony, the two of you. Is that true in real life, by the way? Like, is it beyond the vocal harmony? Do you two mostly get along? Oh, yeah, for sure. We're best friends. And we, and like playing music together is always really fun for us. And yeah. <laughs> I wonder, given your age, if you've thought about going on shows like America's Got Talent or The Voice. They seem like natural outlets to get yourself a national audience. We have gotten a lot of people saying, oh, you guys should be on The Voice because they would love you there. And we really do music not because we want to be like famous or anything like that. We just want to spread our music to people that want to listen to it. Okay, that sounds nice, but you there's no part of you that wants to be famous, Megan. I mean, what we do is play our music for the people that want to listen to it, and if a lot of people like it, then I'm okay with a lot of people wanting to listen to our music, but our goal isn't really to be like popular or famous. Maddie, any part of you want to be famous? So when I was really young, that's pretty much all I wanted to do, but like almost everything changed since then to where I just want to make people happy, like the people who want to listen to us, and just to be good for us. <laughs> where do you see yourself going then? I mean, would you want to pursue music into college, you know, like the Berkeley College of Music, something like that? Yeah, I definitely want to do music for the rest of my life. I don't know a full-time career, though I would love to do that. I'm also really interested in like math and science, and so maybe something with music and so I can incorporate a few other things into that. Oh, how about for you, Maddie? Um, pretty much the same thing. I want to do like a part-time job of that and a part-time of other things. What are your other interests? So this is going to sound sort of weird. I'm <laughs> interested in pretty much just overall nature, but I like trees and wood and like everything about that sort of thing. Hmm. You could become a dendrologist, a tree scientist. I would love that. Okay. <laughs> Maddie, you, as I said, uh, do a lot of the writing and, and uh, you've got another original on this album. It's called Abandoned Gas Station. I didn't have a lot of money to take her Tonight, 
what would be your dream venue to play? Where would you love to play? It's a hard question. I really like playing in like theaters. Oh, I got one. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so we go to this festival every year, um, Rocky Grass Bluegrass Festival. It's in Lyons. Yeah. And it's a really cool place, and I it would be really fun to play there. The Cody sisters, Megan and Maddie, are from Parker, south of Denver. They were one of many Colorado bluegrass acts to release new music in 2017, along with Yonder Mountain String Band, Head for the Hills, and our next guest, who's proof that bluegrass isn't all giggles. Johnny Miller was drawn to bluegrass by the sadness and loneliness often heard in the genre. He says something about that sad sound actually made him happy during a difficult time. It led him to pick up a mandolin and start a bluegrass band in Denver called The Lonesome Days. Does this sad song have an end? Is there a rest anywhere inside? This tortured voice blending Seeking sunshine in the night The singer is so weary The crowd can taste the pain I know that's bright and cheery There's no hope in his refrain This is Anthem for the Lonely, off the Lonesome Days debut album recorded at E-Town in Boulder. Miller, joined by his bandmate, banjo player Todd Lilienthal, told us about the life event that prompted him to start playing music. Johnny, before starting this band, you'd gone through a divorce, and I understand it hit you hard and in a way motivated you to start this band. How so? Yeah, well, that was like uh, nine years ago. I got married really, really young, and... uh, kind of found bluegrass towards the end of that that whole thing and uh the music kind of became my therapy and i would sit and play the mandolin for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours it was cathartic yeah absolutely yeah it would uh the mandolin was kind of where it all started and then uh, i started to scratch down you know some lyrics and stuff and uh and then the songwriting kind of joined as like an equal partner in that therapeutic release you know a lot of people are like you're so sad all your songs are so sad why don't you write a happy song well you know it's a really good place to put those feelings and it feels like they're out of you at that point you you release them i i just can't say enough what it what it's done for me like you know emotionally and mentally over the years it's just it's like a healing force in my life sometimes i walk out that door the whistle in the lips of melodies before when the times were young and no chores were to be done, all the rules were learned and ignored. Todd, what has bluegrass done for you? And, and what attracted you to it? Uh, what attracted me to it? Uh, first, I guess, I was, I was going to see you up in Boulder and working at the Fox Theater and, and saw a bunch of the great bands that were around in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I grew up in California, so I didn't really have a lot of exposure to bluegrass and the banjo. Um, and working at the Fox... You know, occasionally walk in and, and see these bands and, and a couple banjo players in particular. The late Mark Van from Leftover Salmon one night in particular walked yes. in and saw him playing an acoustic show with those guys. And I just thought to myself, I, I really need to learn how to do that. I understand that a competition in Telluride was really the kind of gelling force for creating a band out of this. Yeah, so I was, uh, I believe it was 2014 when uh, some good friends of ours, uh, Trout Steak Revival, 
won the band competition. And this is at the Telluride at Bluegrass. The Telluride, Festival. Yeah, the, sa- the same festival. And uh, I was camped with them the year that they won it. And it was just a real inspiration to see like my close friends be so successful. And they are doing great now and uh, for themselves. And they still inspire me to this day. But it became like a real goal. Todd, do you remember the phone ringing or what? I do. Uh, yeah, I was in, in Seattle at the time. And Johnny calls me up and that was basically the introduction is, you know, we were good friends and, and musical buddies for a long time, but he says, you know, I want to make this band and I want to go compete and tell you right at the band competition or are you in? And it was, it was a no brainer. It was something that all of us wanted to do. You've yeah. been runner up twice. Twice. You're the Susan Lucci so far. <laughs> of Bluegrass. Uh, I want to hear more music. Here's from the new album, Chasing Down the Whiskey. Well, it breaks my heart every time I start. What would you say makes a good bluegrass song, Todd? Oh man, I mean, I'm biased. I, I love the banjo, but I what I really enjoy listening to is the traditional arrangement of bass and mandolin and guitar and banjo and the and the harmonies that can come into place that have, people have been perfecting instrumentally and the storytelling. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I love being in a band with with Johnny and and Sam and Bradley is uh, the focus on the storytelling and, and bringing the emotive aspect out of the music is so important to me. Yeah, so Johnny, you and another bandmate, a guitarist, Sam Parks, do the bulk of the songwriting. Yeah, and right. another tune you wrote is Who's Gonna Cry? Who's gonna cry for me when I go? When I go, who'll cry for me? Who on this earth is gonna miss me so? When I go... You graduated from Columbine High School in 1998. 1998, yeah. And I understand that this song speaks indirectly to the events that happened there the year after you graduated. And of course, two students killed a dozen classmates and a teacher. Uh, Will you share a bit more about this song? Yeah, so actually, the day that I wrote this song, it was the day of the Pulse nightclub shooting. In Orlando. Yeah, in Orlando. And, um, you know, because I wasn't at the school that day. But I did. I lived in the neighborhood across the street, and uh, it was more the, the aftermath, like what it did to our community. Every time one of those things happens, it affects me pretty deeply. I'll, I'll never forget that time in my life and and what it did um, to all those families and just to the community in general. And what so, what are you saying in in this song? There's just that the idea and the concept that even if you're you're dying in a room full of people like those people did in those situations that um, that experience is still like a very individual experience. That's just what kind of hit me that night when I heard about the shooting in Orlando that I was kind of imagining all these people. And even if someone was there holding them or they were next to someone else that was, was about to go as well. It's a singular experience. You're the only one that experiences that that moment for yourself. Hmm. 
uh, which seems appropriate in a way for a band called The Lonesome Days. Thanks to both of you for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Johnny Miller and Todd Lilienthal are members of the Denver Bluegrass Quartet, The Lonesome Days. They spoke with Ryan Warner in August. At CPR.org, hear their music in a Spotify playlist we've put together of our favorite songs from Colorado artists in 2017. And that's our show for today. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day. Who on this earth is going to miss me so when I go? Who cries?